Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism, and also your host on this show, Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort of take out some leftover news, but warm it up, serve it up, piping and hot. Here's what we've got for you this week on our menu. First, no chaos in Kazakhstan, but some fascinating footnotes. Pope Francis wraps up a three-day visit to the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan, September 13th to the 15th. And while there weren't really any earthquakes or thunderbolts, nonetheless, there were several interesting bits of subtext. We're going to look at three. One, the dogs that didn't bark. How it's what didn't happen in Kazakhstan that in some ways told the tale. Second, clerical criticism. The Pope was only in town three days, but he managed to draw fire from two prominent clerics, one Russian Orthodox, the other Roman Catholic. We'll explain why it's actually probably the Orthodox critique that got under his skin a little bit more. And then third and finally, chairman of the board, how the Kazakhstan trip solidified the profile of modern popes as the leaders of religious moderates everywhere and in every tradition. Then, betting the voters, we will look at the profile of the voting age cardinals exactly one year from today, when the number will return to that magic 120 threshold established by St. Paul VI, and try to figure out why it is that conventional wisdom misses the real impact of the Francis Revolution on the electorate. Then, and apologies for the slightly off-color language, but a cardinal with cojones. How the Pope's top official for charity, Polish Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, this past weekend in Ukraine, cemented his profile as a bishop with just jaw-dropping bravado. And then finally, giving it up for gratitude. A couple of thank yous. One for a bishop, the other for baseball, and I'll explain why the two are kind of oddly related. That's what we've got for you this week. So please, we're going to take a short break, but don't go anywhere. For the love of God, stick around. All right, happy Tuesday, everybody. We begin this week with Pope Francis in Kazakhstan. The Pope was in the Central Asian country of Kazakhstan last week, September 13th to the 15th. And while in many ways it was an utterly predictable outing, the Pope went to Kazakhstan for an interfaith summit, a Congress of World Leader, World Leader, I forget the actual name, something like Religious World and Traditional Religions or something like that. But anyway, it was an interfaith summit and said pretty much the things you would expect him to say. That is, religious leaders should reject war, they should stand for peace, they should work together in defense of the most vulnerable, and so on. And so, at the big picture level, frankly, you would say, maybe this was a snooze fest, but not so. Because at the level of detail, there were several interesting elements of this trip. Let's begin with the dogs that didn't bark. So, in the run-up to this trip, it was widely expected that Pope Francis would, while he was in Kazakhstan, have a tete-a-tete with his opposite number in the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, the leader 
of by far the largest of the Eastern Orthodox churches. However, just before the thing was supposed to happen, Kirill announced that he was not going to go and that he would instead be sending a delegate. Now, the reason that this meeting was so widely anticipated is because Patriarch Kirill and the power structure of the Russian Orthodox Church is known for their full-throated support of the Russian war in Ukraine, of kind of sprinkling holy water on Putin's war, basically. And so it was expected that this meeting would provide Pope Francis with an opportunity, behind the scenes at least, to try to nudge Kirill towards a more balanced position. In the end, it didn't happen because Kirill bailed. Pope Francis did see the number two official in the Russian Orthodox system, and we don't know details of that conversation, but in any event, some would say that was sort of a missed opportunity. Now, nevertheless, it remains the case that in full public view, with Russian Orthodox clergy sitting in the room, Pope Francis did have the opportunity to say that religious leaders must never use their positions, use their spiritual influence to try to justify violence or aggression. Now, you know, that is a kind of generic thing that popes always say, but nevertheless, in context, well, it packed a certain punch. Another missed opportunity is that while Pope Francis was in Kazakhstan last Wednesday, so was another world leader of some note, Premier Xi Jinping of China. And we now know, thanks to Vatican officials, that the Vatican had actually reached out to China to see if there would be any interest in trying to put together some FaceTime for the Pope and Premier Xi, but that the Chinese said there simply wasn't any time. Some have spun this up as a great Chinese snub of the Pope, but it's not as if the fact that the Pope and Xi did not meet means that China did not figure in the Pope's Kazakhstan outing, because on the papal plane, on the way back to Rome, when Pope Francis conducted his customary in-flight news conference, an enterprising rock star scintillating Vatican journalist by the name of Elise Allen of Crux, my wife, took the opportunity to ask Pope Francis about the upcoming trial of Cardinal Joseph Zinn in China. Zinn, the former bishop of Hong Kong, has been charged with sedition under the new national security law in Hong Kong for promoting pro-democracy groups during the Hong Kong protests a couple of years ago. He stands charged with crimes along with four other defendants. His trial is set to get underway this week. So Elise asked the Pope whether he considered the charges against Zinn a violation of religious freedom and also about, you know, whether he had hoped to meet with Xi and, and basically the China question, right? Now, the Pope, it has to be said, did not engage Elise's question directly. That is, he did not deliver a yes or no to whether this trial is a violation of religious freedom. What he said instead is that China is complicated. It's very hard to understand. He said, you know, there are some things to us that might seem undemocratic, but on the other hand, 
you know, when you're dealing with China, you need to be patient. And he emphasized that the Vatican and the church have chosen the path of dialogue, that is trying to engage the Chinese rather than sort of, you know, shunning them rhetorically and, and taking shots. So, you know, we will see how all this plays out, but it is nevertheless interesting. Well, two things are interesting. One, that Xi had the opportunity to meet the Pope and pass, which would suggest that maybe he doesn't want to be faced with the same question that Elise put to Francis about the Zen trial. He doesn't want to explain what's going on there. Although, maybe that's not it at all, because you have to say that if the Chinese were actually concerned about PR in the West, would they actually be threatening jail time for a nonagenarian cleric whose only crime is speaking out in favor of democracy? I don't know. But in any event, I think it's interesting that the Chinese essentially passed on that opportunity. May also be that Xi didn't want to ask questions about the deal with the Vatican over the appointment of bishops in China, which is currently up for renewal and which the Vatican wants to renew. I think the other thing that is interesting about it is that it indicated, I think Pope Francis was delicately trying to get across that while he is not going to take pot shots at China in public right now, nevertheless, he does have his eye on the Zen trial, and the Vatican is clearly interested in how that's going to play out. All right, now, clerical criticism. Two prominent clerics, Metropolitan Anthony Savriuk, who is the number two official in the Russian Orthodox system and who represented Patriarch Kirill at the Kazakhstan gathering, took the opportunity of having a few minutes with reporters while he was in Kazakhstan to say that Pope Francis, when earlier this year in May, told a reporter that in a private Zoom call with Kirill, he had told Kirill that it's not a good idea to be seen as Putin's altar boy. Metropolitan Anthony said that that language was, quote, very unexpected and not useful for Christian unity. So that was kind of one blast the Pope took from clerical quarters. The other came from the Roman Catholic Auxiliary Bishop of Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who is already well known as a critic of Pope Francis on multiple fronts. He supported the Dubia Cardinals who criticized the Pope over Amoris Laetitia. He has praised Italian Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the Pope's most notorious thorn in the side on, well, virtually everything you can imagine. Unsurprisingly, Schneider, asked by an enterprising rock star, scintillating reporter by the name of Elise Allen, about what he thought of this interfaith gathering that was going on in Kazakhstan, said, oh, I, I don't really like it. It creates the impression of a supermarket of religions you know, the idea being that it suggests that basically one religion is as good as another, and it's just a question of consumer preference, right? So the Pope had these two broadsides from, from clergy. I think the interesting point is that, frankly, the criticism from his own house, that is, from Auxiliary Bishop Schneider, probably, you know, just rolled right off his back. I mean, for one thing, 
It's hardly surprising that Schneider would criticize Pope Francis. He has done so on multiple occasions previously. And for another, this criticism of interfaith gatherings is the same criticism they've drawn ever since John Paul II started doing these things in Assisi in 1986. Okay, I mean, almost word for word. What Schneider said in Kazakhstan last week could have been said about John Paul's summit in Assisi in 86. On the other hand, Metropolitan Anthony is a big deal in the Russian Orthodox Church. Modern popes are committed to the ecumenical movement, and they understand that if they want to promote unity with the Orthodox, they've got to deal with the 800-pound gorilla in the Orthodox world, which is the Russian Orthodox Church. So it's a weird byproduct of ecumenism, isn't it, that a pope would find himself in a position of being a fretting to a greater degree about criticism coming from a Russian Orthodox prelate than from a Roman Catholic prelate. The obvious reason is because the pope has tools to control that Roman Catholic prelate. He doesn't have the same tools to do anything about the Russian Orthodox guy. And then finally, in terms of the aftermath, of the Kazakhstan outing. It's worth saying that modern popes, you know, popes have many titles, right? I mean, they're the successor of Peter. They're the vicar of Christ. They're the primate of Italy, patriarch of the West, and so forth and so on. But a kind of new title informally the popes have is chairman of the board of religious moderates. That is, the leader of that faction in the religious world that wants to say, that terrorism, violence, aggression, hostility, and hatred that is justified in the name of religion isn't authentically religious. And in that sense, like the popes, in, in that limited sense anyway, I think popes speak for all religious moderates, not just Catholics, not just Christians. They're kind of recognized as the spokesperson for religious moderation. In 2002, when John Paul repeated one of those interfaith gatherings in Assisi, I remember Rabbi Israel Singer, at the time he was the head of the World Jewish Congress, got up at the end giving a little thank you to John Paul. And he turned and said, only you, John Paul, could have brought us together like this. And then he went like this, gave him a smart salute. I mean, he was acknowledging that John Paul was the quarterback, right, the captain of the team. And that is, in a sense, the role that modern popes play. That was the role Francis was playing in Kazakhstan. All right, shifting gears, vetting the voters. In exactly one year's time, assuming nothing unexpected happens in the meantime, Italian Cardinal Angelo Camastri will turn 80 and lose his right to vote in the next conclave. In the meantime, 10 other cardinal electors will have done so. There are currently 131, which means that in a year there will be 120. That's the number established by Pope Paul VI in 1975 as the ideal number for a conclave. Now, if you look at what the composition of the College of Cardinals a year from, of the voting members of the College of Cardinals a year from now will be, it's interesting. Conventional wisdom would tell you it's really not all that different than it's ever been. I mean, at that point, there will still be 45 Europeans representing 37.5% of voting members, even though Europe only accounts for 20% of the Catholic population. In other words, they're wildly overrepresented. Mexico and Brazil, the two largest Catholic countries in the world, are still basically getting screwed in terms of proportionality. Mexico will have only two cardinals. 
That's one vote in a conclave for every 50 million Mexican Catholics. Brazil will have six. That's one vote for every 31 million Brazilian Catholics. On the other hand, Italy, with 14 voting cardinals, would have one vote for every 3.5 million Catholics. The United States, by the way, will still also be overrepresented. We'll have 10 voting cardinals. That's the second largest national bloc, even though we only have 6% of the world's Catholic population. So you would say, come on, you know, what's, uh, where's the beef? You know, what has Francis actually done? Well, you have to drill down to get to the beef, because here's the real difference. If you look at where those cardinals within continents come from, it is radically different. Francis has bypassed the established centers of power and created cardinals in unpredictable places. In the United States, we now have cardinals in Newark and San Diego, and we briefly had a cardinal in Indianapolis. None of these are places that have ever had cardinals before. Italy, there are now cardinals in Perugia and Como. Those places have never had them before. Lecai in Haiti has a cardinal, never before. And you could go on down the line. Currently in Europe, think about this. Milan, Prague, Paris, Warsaw, places that have had cardinals for as long as any of us can remember, none of them currently do. And so the real impact of the Francis Revolution is that he has broken with the institutional model for creating cardinals, which is that the red hat is attached to a job, that is either a senior Vatican post or a senior archdiocese someplace. And he's gone back to a more personal model, which is he creates cardinals based on people he thinks share his ecclesiastical, political, spiritual vision, regardless of what institutional role they happen to hold. What that means is that whenever a conclave occurs the next time, and we have no idea when that will be, but whenever it happens, we don't know what they're going to do. But what we do know is that it's very much going to be Francis's men who do it. By the way, a year from now, Pope Francis will have appointed in excess of two-thirds of all the cardinal electors, again, reinforcing the idea that this will very much be Pope Francis's electorate. A cardinal with cojones. So Polish Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, who is the papal almoner, in other words, Pope Francis's right-hand man for charitable activity, was in Ukraine over the weekend. It's the fourth time he's gone since the war broke out leading a humanitarian convoy to deliver assistance to the eastern part of the country. Now, bear in mind, Krajewski is also the head of a Vatican dicastery, this new dicastery for charitable service that Pope Francis has created, which means he's more or less the equivalent of a cabinet member in the United States. Now, while Krajewski was in Ukraine leading this convoy on Saturday, it came under fire from Russian forces. They, they started there was gunfire. There was a gunfire attack on his convoy. He was totally unhurt, as were the bishops who were with him. But nevertheless, right, they took shot. Now, imagine if a cabinet member from the United States, like the Secretary of Health and Human Services, had been leading a convoy in Ukraine, and it came under fire from hostile forces. What would have happened? Okay, Security forces would have, sur would have surrounded that person. They would have been put in an underground bunker until they could be put on the first secure flight out of the country. They wouldn't see the light of day again until they were in secure airspace. What did Krajewski do? Not only did he refuse to curtail his public schedule, 
But he and an auxiliary bishop actually went door to door in active combat zones just to see how people were doing. One of the places they went door to door was in Odessa, which was actually shelled by the Russians just hours after Kryevsky left. Now, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but if that's not Cajones, I'm not sure we've ever seen it. And this is hardly the first time with Kryevsky. I mean, he's infamous, for instance, here in Italy, a few, in Rome, a few years ago, the hardline interior minister at the time, Matteo Salvini, turned off the electricity, a building in Rome, which had been illegally occupied by homeless people, including refugees. Now, where other bishops might have put out press releases or filed lawsuits, Kraevsky just got in a car and drove across town to this building, ripped open the manhole cover covering the, electoral, the electric junction box or whatever, and went down himself and turned the power back on. That violated the law, but he didn't really care. During COVID, you know, when the Pope's own vicar for Rome declared all the churches in the city closed, Kraevsky went to his own church and threw the doors open and invited people in for prayer, saying, hey, the fascists didn't close churches. The communists didn't close churches. We're not going to do it either. This is Kraevsky, right? I mean, you can think different things about that behavior. You can have different opinions. But what you have to say, the guy is not lacking in nerve. And at a time when so much public leadership appears bland, timid, and gray, you know, I just think we have to be grateful for a cardinal who just says, I'm doing it my way. Okay, final note this week, a couple of quick thank yous. One, I want to thank Bishop Robert Barron and Word on Fire, the evangelical ministry and movement that Barron has created. We hosted a reception for them here in Rome not long ago. Barron was in town speaking to a meeting of the Pontifical Academy for Sciences. Word on Fire is a major advertising client for Crux, and I am also a fellow at the Word on Fire Institute. We're infinitely grateful for their support. So a quick shout out to the people at Word on Fire. Second, because Christianity is supposed to promote, among other things, the virtue of gratitude, I want to note something I am grateful for, which is one of the most magical baseball seasons we have ever seen. I'm a huge baseball nut. This year, there are two guys, Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees and Shohei Otani of the LA Angels, who are putting together seasons the likes of which we've never seen. Over the weekend, Judge hit his 58th and 59th steroid-free home runs. He might well win the Triple Crown for home runs, RBIs, and batting average, one of the greatest offensive seasons ever. Otani, meanwhile, over the weekend, pitched seven shutout innings and threw eight strikeouts. He's going to finish this year with more than 35 home runs and more than 200 strikeouts. You know the only other player in baseball history who put together a season like that? It was Babe Ruth in 1918, who had 11 home runs and 43 strikeouts. This is like saying, there's a composer alive right now who is writing music that is statistically at least three and a half times better than Mozart. If you can't be grateful for that, I don't know what you can be. Now, here's the weird connection between the two things. Bishop Barron is actually a huge baseball net. And one of his signature approaches is evangelization through beauty. 
That is, Catholicism is ultimately, it's about beauty, truth, and worship, but that the best evangelization strategy is to lead with beauty. Well, I would say the same thing is happening in Major League Baseball this year. I mean, if you can't appreciate the beauty of the seasons that Aaron Judge and Shohei Itani are putting together, then I, I don't know. I would get your heart checked. There's something wrong with you because it is just magic. And so I think baseball right now is confirming the barren instinct that if you want people to fall in love with something, lead with beauty, then explain the rules to them. Trying to do it the other way around is not going to get the job done. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for being with us. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, and you've got a full week to do this, go on the Crux site, cruxnow.com. That's cruxnow.com. Check out Elise Allen's saran wrap-like coverage of the Pope's trip to Kazakhstan. You won't find smarter or more insightful journalism anywhere on the planet, so do that. Read Crux for full coverage of all the stories we've talked about and all the breaking news in the Catholic world. Also, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.